Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to discuss an article from the August issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled, Is That Corn Crop Worth More as Silage or Grain? To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Galen Erickson, who's a Nebraska Extension Beef Feedlot Specialist. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, great to be here. Well, Dr. Erickson, as we record this podcast, it's early August, and many producers are going to be thinking about starting their choppers soon to begin to harvest corn silage. And I think especially for the eastern third of the state, there's a lot of places where forage is in short supply. Uh, corn has been maybe drought stressed in some situations. And in other situations, people are just looking at available forage and thinking, I'm not sure our hay crop is going to be adequate to meet our needs from a forage supply standpoint. That brings up the option of possibly harvesting corn as silage. And just want to get your perspective as we think about harvesting corn silage, comparing it to grain. How do we value corn silage and what are some things to think through as we do that? Well, yeah, I think in many years when it comes to forage supply, uh, fortunately, corn still normally produces pretty good corn. And so corn silage, I think, is a great fit for many beef operations. That would include feedlots, cow-calf, and, and backgrounding calves. You know, to me, when you look at whether I should harvest that, if, if you're producing the corn and you have the cattle, should you harvest it for grain or corn silage? I think it comes down to how you want to accurately price the silage because you can make it to where it's a, a fair comparison between the two. If I overcharge for silage because I didn't price it correctly, then it may never make sense in my operation and you'd always harvest it as corn grain. Conversely, it becomes really important to be pricing corn silage accurately if I'm buying it, of course, from my neighbor corn producer. And so we've done a fair amount of work looking at how to price it. And, and first off, you, you, we look at pricing it standing in the field. And then we look at some of the, all the added costs, if you will, of harvesting the silage minus the combining and, and hauling it to market or storage costs that you would if you went to grain. So it's a little complex, but it's there's some really good tools out there to use. Yeah, I think your comment, it can get a little complex is exactly right, because ultimately we want to get to what's the cost per pound of energy, what's the cost per pound of protein actually delivered to the cattle and consumed by them. But there's a lot of steps between that crop standing in the field, whether it's going to be potentially harvested for grain or silage and actually getting that delivered to the cattle. Yeah. So, for example, uh, we use, and, and this agrees with some of the work from Iowa State and Wisconsin, and of course from us here in Nebraska, basically you take the price of corn and it's 7.65 times the price of corn that it's standing in the field. And so uh, if you have $5 per bushel corn, take it times 7.65 and that gives you the price, but it's in the field. Now, you have to add on the cost of the chopping, transporting it to your bunker storage and packing it. There's also a, a 6% on average yield drag. Basically, your corn would have produced 6% more at the time of silage harvest. And that's frankly something we miss, but that agrees good, uh, very well with the data from Nebraska and Wisconsin, where they've measured, where we've measured and they've measured how much less corn grain at the time of silage harvest we get. 
The other thing that, that's probably the most controversial and, and something I care about deeply is if I'm buying it from you, Aaron, as my neighbor, you wanted me to pay for the N, P, and K that I remove in the forage component. Because if you were normally harvesting it for corn grain, you would leave the residue that includes the N, P, and K that's in half of that the half of the of the content, which is in the forage. But here's the problem: when I have manure to put back on your crop field, you don't necessarily want to pay me N, P, and K cost of fertilizer to put it back on your field. So, in situations like that, I suggest a, a fair trade between manure and, and maybe offsetting that cost of the nutrient replacement. And then lastly, and we should talk more about this, but that's shrink. You know, if you're not going to do a good job managing the silage process, if you're not going to do a good job of packing it and covering it and managing the process of harvest, then I wouldn't put up silage because frankly, you can make it go from being quite economical as a feed on a TDN basis to not being economical compared to alternatives if you don't manage it well. So I'd like to circle back and just touch again on that yield drag thing that you mentioned, because I think that doesn't get talked about very much. Uh, go through that again with us, just understanding if I've got a crop standing in the field and it's right to harvest a silage, the yield I get in terms of harvesting that grain as silage then versus waiting layer and, and combining it as corn. Yeah. So when I harvest at silage, and by, by the way, it's really important what kind of moisture and dry matter is that target. We tend to harvest it a little too wet, but uh, if you target 35 to 37 percent dry matter, which of then, of course, means 63 to 65 percent moisture, and I would recommend 63 percent, by the way, then at that time, the corn plant, in terms of grain filling, is only 94% of what it will be at black layer. So there's actually a little bit of a yield drag on the grain. But you get more forage at that time than you do if you wait till dry corn harvest. So once the corn, as the corn's maturing, it's filling the grain right in the ear. And the data from Wisconsin and Nebraska suggests that we get about 94% of the way there on our grain yield at the about optimum time of harvesting silage. Again, back to that 63 to 63% moisture, for example. So if I wait though and go to corn, dry corn grain harvest, a lot of people say, well, it's not 50% forage, 50% grain and silage, which it is. A lot of people say it's not that, it's 60% grain, 40% forage. That's true at dry grain harvest. So you lose some forage if you wait, but you gain a little bit of grain. So why does that matter? That matters because if I'm looking at yields and how much grain I'm harvesting, I could underpay for my silage if I don't account for having a little bit more grain that would have probably come if I had waited and let it go to, to black layer. And, and so when we harvest high moisture corn or dry rolled corn, or excuse me, high moisture corn or dry corn, there's of course no yield drag. That is what the yield was going to be, whatever we harvest. But at silage, it's not quite there on the grain, but we the, the opposite value is you get better amounts and better quality of forage at silage harvest. 
So let's also just talk about, and you mentioned this, the importance of putting silage up correctly and then making sure that we minimize loss due to uh, just dry matter loss that we would have by not getting it packed well, by not getting a good ensiling process to occur. Yeah, and I think we're doing better in the beef industry at putting up silage, but we're still not, for example, we're still not as as good at putting up silage as, as dairy producers are, for example. And so that's how we know we can do better, right? If, if we didn't know there was a, a better way of doing it or, or better options of management, we'd think, well, we're just good enough and, and having 20% shrink would just be acceptable. But in fact, I think at the time of harvest, first off, harvesting it so that you can pack it as fast as you're harvesting it is always a bit of a challenge. And there's some excellent guidance on how much silage harvest you can put onto the bunker at a, at a time as you're packing. There's also excellent information on how much weight I should be putting on my tractors as I'm packing it, or if I want to use a packer, how much, how much packing density we want to target and so on. So at the end of the day, you want to have somewhere around 15 to 16 pounds of dry matter per cubic foot, which of course translates to about 45 pounds as is of silage per cubic foot. A cubic foot, if everybody envisions that, is not very big, right? One foot by one foot by one foot cube. And imagine getting 45 pounds of silage packed in that one cubic foot. It takes a lot of packing pressure. Why does that matter? Because the what's critical is right after the time of harvest, that silage starts to ferment and sile. And if there's any oxygen in there, first off, the oxygen's used up really quickly that's in the plant cells automatically. And you're trying to push all the oxygen out when you pack it, because if there's oxygen left in, then you get aerobic decomposition and silage can turn bad. Well, people just think, well, if I have too much oxygen in there, it just won't ferment and won't sile. That's not true. The more oxygen you have, just that the more the longer it takes to become anaerobic, and therefore you're losing pounds of silage the longer, the more days that takes. It should take less than a day to get rid of all the oxygen in your pile and it convert over to being anaerobic. So it's pretty critical to, to get your punk bunker made quickly, pack it as hard as you can again, with a target of, of 15 pounds of dry matter minimum. And then the last crucial step is get an oxygen barrier on it. And I know from experience myself, and I know from talking to lots of producers, I've never met somebody that enjoys covering a bunker pile, but it is worth the investment. It's worth the time. It's worth the hassle, frankly, to get it covered with some type of oxygen barrier whether that's plastic or other barriers that are out there in, in the industry, because uh, the data are clear. You can go from having 20 to 25% dry matter shrink to less than 15 pretty quickly just from proper covering. So for many listeners to the Beef Watch podcast, they're at a scale where actually looking at bagging silage may be an advantage. And I'm just thinking here, Galen, yeah. of some of the challenge of, I think about the size of choppers today, and let's say I'm a backgrounding yard and I'm using some silage, but uh, just feed out levels, the trying to get it packed, sealed. Talk about the opportunities to consider or where you think maybe bagging silage might be an option as compared to a bunker silo. 
Yeah, bagging is is a good option. And we do a lot of that in our own research applications because of the size and scale. And so I can relate to um, to that concern that, that smaller needs of silage. If you have a smaller need for silage, a big bunker won't work. First off, I would mention that the one of the benefits of a bag is that you can actually manage the face of the silage. When someone talks about the face of the silage, they simply mean the part that's exposed as you're feeding it out the rest of the year, right? So when you look at, when you open up the bag or open up a bunker, all the silage you start scraping off that day for feeding, you've exposed now that whole silage uh, surface that you just scraped away to oxygen. And so what we really want to do is make sure we can take out three to six inches of that face every day and try not to leave a lot of loose silage piled at the bottom. In other words, don't try and remove a bunch from the face and get it loose so you can scoop it up easily and let it sit there loose on the, in the bottom of your, of your face or the bottom of the bag. So bagging actually from a face management perspective makes it much better because you have an eight foot or 10 foot bag to manage instead of a 50 foot wide bunker face, for example. Bagging costs a little bit more, uh, but again, for your scale and size, it might be the best fit. Most times we estimate it's gonna be about eight to $10 per ton to, to bag it. And uh, we bag our own, but you may wanna do that commercially and get a, a, a contractor. And many custom operators may offer that service as well. But the other benefit of the bag is then it is about as pristine of an environment as long as you don't hit the bag and cut any holes in it or have a hailstorm or any varmints, you'll be the bag is theoretically kind of the most uh, pristine environment because we're we're able to control the pressure on the bagging and you got to put a fair amount of pressure on silage. You want to be at 400, 500 psi or 800 psi bagging. And, and that puts pretty good pressure on the bag and helps get that oxygen out of there. So bagging is a great fit. Costs a little bit more per ton of silage at the end of the day. But again, like you mentioned, if you don't need a lot of silage, it is a very pristine way of managing. Well, the other thing that comes to mind for me, Galen, is what you just said, is that uh, getting the pile covered and sealed is or not something they look forward to doing. And if we're bagging it, right. that's already done for us. Right. Last thing I'd mention, Aaron, is that when you bag, many times people, you know, you tie up one end and that's the bag, the end you start with. But when you get to the end of the bag, you just want to throw some soil on that bag or something to cover that end. And you do that. And it's, and it's ironic, but actually just throwing some some soil or dirt on the end of the bag to keep, you know, to close out the end that you end with is sort of like a one way gap. It lets the air out, the gases out that are being fermented, but it doesn't let a lot of oxygen back in. So it's a it's a good way. Yeah, for sure. And then, Aaron, we should talk about we really want to let it sit for three weeks minimum. Four weeks is what many people suggest. So in a perfect situation, when you put up silage, you do want to let it sit and ferment for at least a 21 day period. 28 is probably a little safer, but. Galen, I'd like to go back and just mention again what you talked about with face management and uh, thinking about taking silage off the face. You mentioned we don't want to loosen it up. So, you know, let's say I'm going out there with a payloader or a bucket on a tractor. I guess what I hear you saying is I want to actually scrape from the top down and try to rake that silage loose yeah. going down, cutting it rather than 
putting it in the bottom and then picking it up and loosening the pile. Is that correct? Yeah, in fact, there's uh, certain equipment that some large dairies and, and even some large feeders use that it's called a rake. And it, it sort of cuts the face as you're scraping down so that you expose the least amount of surface area. That's a little hard to do with a conventional bucket, right, Aaron? But I think that uh, with practice, I guess the point is you don't need to dig in three feet on the top and then loosen up a bunch of pile at the bottom and then not then carry that over for the next day. So just try to scrape it to where it's as, as, as straight up and down as you can with as minimal amount of loose material uh, laying at the bottom. And there's going to be a little bit, but I think the better we do it at trying to keep the stuff that's packed into the bunker or into the bag, trying to keep the mouth packed in that you're not going to feed for that day. That's always the best operate, the best, uh, management option at your on your day-to-day feeding and so yes if you can cut it with your buck with your bucket and scrape it so that it's a flat surface when you're done for the day that's ideal elon anything else you'd like to highlight on this topic as we point towards wrapping up yeah the last thing i'd mention is um well don't be afraid of silage it's not a new ingredient right we've been doing it for centuries uh and so it's it's a good feed I think in many situations it's economical, but you do got to manage your your shrink. At the end of the day, if your if your silage is is uh, valued into your feed into your cattle at seventy percent or less of corn grain, it's an economical ingredient on a TDM basis, even in compared to corn grain. And certain years, it's very economical compared to um, other forages that are out there. And so I think it's been a great option for many beef operations to, and, and in some ways, I think we see a bit of a re- renaissance, if you will, of silage coming back to many operations. And that's simply because we're short on other forages and, and this is a great alternative. It is a higher energy feed than some forages that many cow-calf producers would use. So Aaron, I do think if, if your target animals, cows, um, in many ways, silage itself, or feeding silage straight to cows might be too much energy, but you can always limit feed it. You can always mix it in with other lower quality forages to bring the energy down to an appropriate amount for the cow, depending upon her stage of production. But for backgrounding calves and of course as a roughage and, and forage for feedlot cattle, it's excellent. Lastly, I'd mention that we really encourage you to take a sample or many samples at the time of harvest and get a moisture content at the time of harvest. And the reason for that is if you want to measure shrink, you really need to have a moisture content going into the bunker or into the bag, as well as a moisture samples at the time as you feed it out over time. And and that way you can accurately calculate dry matter shrink. I think too often we are measuring as fed shrink. So we only measure moisture content that comes out of the bunker or out of the bag. And we don't know what the moisture content was going in. So why does that matter? Because actually the silage gets about one percentage unit wetter. So if I put up silage and it's put up at 62% moisture, uh, at the time of feeding, I would predict it's gonna be about 63% moisture. And uh, so I think putting up, putting, putting up the silage at the right time, uh, meaning the right moisture content, 
managing the process and then and then measuring your shrink are always good recommendations for for producers to use and and know where you're at but again it's a it's a great feed if done correctly uh, Galen you've been part of a team that's put together a silage conference every two years and those conferences have been recorded they're available online just talk briefly about the resources that are there and for folks that want to dig deeper into this topic what they might find there yeah, you're uh, you're right, Aaron, and really uh, it's been uh, supported and sponsored by La Lamonde Animal Nutrition. But we've done a lot of work in the last decade on on how to use silage, and and think we've you know learned quite a bit even in the last decade. And so we decided we would start to uh, do a biannual um, silage conference every couple of years, and been super well attended. But even better is, is we captured all of that information. It's all available on our BEEF website, beef.unl.edu. And um, it's been called Silage for Beef. And so I think it's been useful. A, a lot of information there on uh, do I use inoculants and what does it do for me? How to store it properly? How to pack silage properly? Uh, what does shrink cost me? And then, and then lots of good information, I think, from, from University of Nebraska and other universities on how best to use it when you go to feed it. So, yeah, it's, it's great resource, I hope. And, and even better, I believe, is we have uh, two versions of every presentation. There's a short version and a long version. So if you, if you look at the short version and you're intrigued and want to learn more, you can always watch the long version, but for people like me, it's amazing. You can get most of what you need from me in five minutes instead of the 45 minutes. So you're welcome to look at the short version. And then if you want more information, uh, the recordings are there. And then there's, of course, some resources as well. Well, Dr. Erickson, thanks for your time today. I appreciate you joining me. You bet. My pleasure as always. If people have questions, reach out to your uh, extension educator or, of course, any of us. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. At the website, there are a number of resources on this topic.